The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Uh, a friend of mine got who was a few years older than me when I was in middle school, got married a few years ahead of me as well, and we were sitting down and talking about, uh, you know, what that was like, and he told me a story that stuck with me from about the first day, the first full day of his married life. You know, you do a wedding, there's like all kind of craziness, you know, you got to do all this planning, and there's like special napkins and invitations, and you invite all these people, even the people that you don't like, but you have to invite anyways, it's just a bunch of hoopla, right? And so all that was over, and they woke up on Sunday morning and his new wife rolled over on the bed and said, ah, the marriage is over. He said, no, the wedding is over. The marriage is just getting started, right? Uh, so, so it was easy in that moment to forget that all that wedding stuff matters, but only because there's a marriage, right? The wedding stuff is a part of the marriage, but without the marriage, the wedding stuff is pretty much irrelevant. So that's a little bit about what, a little picture of what Paul's doing in our passage today. Paul is writing the book of Colossians as we have seen. And as Tom Wright puts it, uh, his one great desire in this letter is that the Colossians should grow into full Christian maturity. To grow up into who they are supposed to be in Christ. Right? And last week, Richard preached about how Paul prays that they be filled with the wisdom and understanding they need to walk worthy of the Lord in every good work, growing up in the knowledge of God. And Paul has told them in verses 13 and 14 that they can grow up into the knowledge and wisdom and walk worthy of God because God has rescued them from the power of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So Paul said, I, I am praying, I am longing that you become who I've called you to be in me. You can do that because I've brought you out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of my beloved son, Jesus, says God. And then Paul hits the pause button. And for five verses, he says, let me tell you about my beloved son. Let, let me make sure that you understand who I'm talking about. That's rescued you. Let me make sure you get the truth about this son who I love, who has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness. Because without him, everything else falls apart. Every other thing I'm going to say in the letter, Paul says, falls apart unless you understand and believe and know. And it is true in fact that this Jesus is who I say he is. So in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, this is five verses where Paul is going to tell us about Jesus. And he said, this Jesus is the one in whom the whole thing holds together. And I want to talk about just two things that we can take away from these five verses. Just two. I usually have like nine. Today it's two. All right, there's going to be some application points. But two main ideas. All right. First, Paul wants us to know that Jesus is the creator and ruler of all things. Paul wants us to know that the man Jesus is the creator and ruler of all things. And he wants us to know this so bad that he says it like 19 times, 19 different ways in this like one sentence. It's all over the place. Look at verse 15. 
Okay, Paul says that because he is the one by whom all things were created, he is the one through whom all things were created, and he was the one for whom all things were created. That's just in the first verse. Now, Paul knows, and the Colossians knew, and you know that he's talking about Jesus. It's like dude who like was like born, like walked around on the earth and ate and drank and did stuff. And it's, that's a pretty weird thing to say about a dude, that he's by whom and for whom. And, and so he says it again to make sure that you get it. In verse 17, he says, this man, Jesus, is before all things. Think of everything that exists before that was Jesus. And in him, all things hold together. He is actively sustaining and holding all things together. Now, in case you've missed the point, Paul says it again in verse 19. In him, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And it's like Paul is jumping up and down and shouting at us. The man, Jesus, is the creator and ruler of all things, top to bottom, heaven and earth. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. This one, this man, this human being is God who created everything and sustains everything and is ruling everything. And this is kind of hard to understand. And so oftentimes you may hear uh, people in church use words like describe God like the Trinity. And that idea is just that Paul had known from childhood that there was one God Every Jew always knew there is one God and only one God and all the other people who claim to be God are nothing but idols. But in the resurrection of Jesus, God reveals that this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, all fully God, all so united that we still say there is one God who nevertheless exists in three persons. And what Paul is telling us is that this Jesus is fully God who walked among us, who nevertheless is the creator and ruler of all things. Now, Richard made the really technical, complicated, scholarly point last week that the word all means all. Right? Like I know that's hard to follow. I know some of you need to look that up afterwards. No, the word all means all, right? All things. So let's think about what kind of all things Paul's talking about, right? Okay, so this is a few, few sevens ago I did this. Let's take a time out for science, all right? If you're a kid in here, here's some fun facts you can take home and tell your grandparents. How big is this all that we're talking about, okay? Astronomers say... If we wanted to travel to the very closest star, think about the last time you looked at the stars. They're far away. If you wanted to get to the closest one, and you got on a spaceship that was going 12,000 miles an hour, which is about as fast as anybody's ever gone anywhere, right? It's like hundreds and hundreds of times faster than you've ever been in a car or plane. 12,000 miles an hour, it would take you 165,000 years to get to the nearest star. Jesus lived and died 2,000 years ago. It would take you 165,000 years going 12,000 miles an hour to get to the star that's closest to us. Well, then you ask, I hope, well, how many stars are there? And as soon as we talk about the number of stars, we've got to do billions. So let me give you one of my son's new favorite math facts. If you were born, and the second that you were born, you started counting, like the very first thing, like the doctor slaps you on the butt and you go, one. Two Mississippi, three Mississippi. You would get to a billion when you were 31 years old. It would take you 31 years doing nothing but counting to get to a billion. 
And astronomers tell us that the average galaxy has a hundred billion stars in it. And then they tell us that there are a hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion stars in them. Can you? No, you cannot imagine. You cannot fathom. I cannot fathom. That means that there are as many stars, there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand at Gulf Shores. No, on all the beaches on planet Earth. Think about every picture you've seen of the beach. All the grains of sand on all the planet Earth. There are more stars than that. Here's what Paul is saying. If you got on one of those spaceships and you flew for a trillion years and you went to the farthest star on the far edge of our galaxy, Jesus is there holding that star in place. Paul is saying, that star, billions and trillions, numbers we can't even think about away. Jesus holds it. It shines by him and for him and through him. If you went to the smallest molecule, the smallest cell in your body, or the star of the first flung in the universe, Jesus is the one who created that. It is his. It belongs to him. It shines at his command. It is for him. Or as the Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one inch in all of creation over which Jesus does not say, this is mine. It belongs to me. And he doesn't just, he didn't just create it, but he sustains it. He holds it in place. Sometimes we have this image of God that he created the world like a clock. You know, you wind up a clock, and then if you do it right, it, it works for a long time. And the person who made the clock can go do other things. And we think God's like that. Okay, somebody had to create this thing, right? I mean, it didn't come from nowhere. So maybe somebody created it, but we don't know where he is now. And Paul says, no, he holds it in place. He is constantly keeping the thing running. This is why theologians for 2,000 years have said, if if God wanted to destroy the world, he would not have to do anything. He would have to stop doing something. All that it would take for those hundred billions of galaxies with their hundreds of billions of stars to be extinguished instantly is for Jesus to take his hand off the wheel. That's what Paul's saying. All things by him, through him, for him. And Paul hones in on one particular part of creation that we are particularly likely to think that he does not control. Right? So Paul says, uh, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, that makes sense. Visible and invisible. Okay, that sounds good. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, if you're like me, when you read thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, what's he talking about? I don't know what those mean. And maybe you think uh, he's talking about like spiritual realities that we can't see like angels and demons and Satan and death and all that stuff. And the answer to that is, yes, he's talking about that. But then other views you might be thinking, well, he said on earth and in heaven, and Paul lived in a world full of like actual human rulers and authorities and realms and powers. So maybe he's talking about like kings and governors and governments and economies and cultures. And the answer to that is also, yes, that's also what he's talking about. So for Paul, the social and the political and the economic and the spiritual, they're all part of one thing. He doesn't divide them up neatly. And so what he's saying is everything by God, for God, under God in Christ, even the stuff that you're most likely to think he doesn't control, right? Like whoever looks at the government and says, yeah, God's got that. Not me. When I look at the government, I think, man, that's, if there's anything that's outside of his control, that's it. You know, or when we talk about the devil and we say, it's often the devil made me do it. You know, that kind of stuff. It's easy to think like maybe God doesn't control that stuff. God says, no, whatever there is, wherever you look, if you can see the things that are invisible that humans make and that I have made and the spirit, whatever there is in anywhere.
there. The furthest flung galaxy and the most mysterious realities of our life, all created by God, sustained by God, ruled by God. That's the first point. Jesus is the ruler and the creator of all things. Here's the second part. The creator and the ruler has become one of us to reconcile all things to himself. The creator and the ruler has become one of us to reconcile all things to himself. Read with me in verse 19. Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What Paul is telling us is Jesus is not just the creator who creates all things top to bottom. He is not just the, the, the ruler who rules all things top to bottom. He is the God who steps on the scene, who enters the story as a human to rescue all things, to reclaim all things, to reconcile every square inch. In other words, if there is not one square inch in all of creation... That God does not rightly say, mine, Paul is telling us, there is not one square inch that Jesus did not become a human to claim for himself as king and ruler. Jesus, Paul is telling us, has shown up to reclaim what belongs to God, which is everything. And that when Jesus has shown up as the king whose creation is out of whack, he doesn't just smite it into existence but he reconciles it to himself. He makes peace with what is broken through his own blood. What's going on here? When Paul says these words, they make sense against the whole story of the Bible that the entire thing is about. So let's do like a quick flyer over of that. All the way back in the beginning, we're told that when God creates men and women, he says, I am, I am giving you an identity and a job description. An identity and a job description. You are my image bearers. You look like me. You bear my family resemblance. And because you bear my family resemblance, my big plan and purpose is that you are going to rule with me over everything. I rule everything as God, but I want human rulers too. So I've made humans who look like me, and they will rule with me. And those first humans like every human who's ever lived, including you, said no. They gave God the finger and it wasn't the thumbs up, right? Said no, we won't do it. We don't want to be like that. We reject the identity that you've given us and we reject the job description that you've given us. And because you and I reject the identity that we've been given and the job description that we've been given, we mess everything up. Andrew Vincent and I used to teach a class at uh, Advanced Memphis, and we'd use this illustration. Imagine your dream car. Do that. Imagine it. You got it in your head? Imagine someone lends you that dream car and says, you're in charge of it, right? Take care of it. You could say, because I'm in charge of it, because like I've been lent the car, it's in my possession, I can treat it how I want to treat it. Like, you could decide to just fill up the gas tank with Gatorade. Say, it's my car. I'm the one in charge of it. I'm supposed to take care of it. But if you fill the car with Gatorade instead of gasoline, it's not going to run, which is what it was made to do. 
And if you keep filling it with gasoline and keep, I mean, excuse me, with Gatorade and keep trying to turn the car on, the car is going to get increasingly unable to do what it's supposed to do. So eventually, if you're like, oh crap, this gasoline, this Gatorade idea was a bad idea. Let me put some gasoline here. The car has now been corrupted so that it will not run. You follow me? The Bible is telling us that because we said, I think we prefer Gatorade to gasoline, not only do we now owe God for screwing up his stuff, but we've become cars that don't work anymore. We can't get down the road. And the truth of the Bible is that God didn't just lend you any kind of car. He lent you an ambulance to go to work in his world. And if the ambulance doesn't run, then we introduce havoc into all of human society. And that's the truth of the, of the story in the Bible. Humans, rejecting their identity, rejecting their job description, have introduced terrible havoc into society. Brother against brother, sister against sister, a world broken by human rebellion. That's the story of the Bible. And what God does not say is, I guess I will give up on humans ruling and reigning with me. What he says is, I will become one of them. I will rule as one of them. And because of that, I will restore my people. I will give them back their image. I will fix their engine. I will get them back on the road. That's the picture that Paul is giving us. God become human to reconcile all things. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that we are guilty for smashing up God's stuff. Jesus comes on the scene and says, humans have racked up a big debt. I will pay that by dying on the cross. My life for theirs. Humans have become really stupid and incompetent at doing any good. If you've ever, like, like, tried to be a boss for the first time, or, like, tried to make a new friend, or, or, or gotten married, you know that, like, the times we do the dumbest stuff is the times when we're trying the hardest, right? So we sometimes, I get it, I get what Jesus wants me to do, and we run out there and we make a total mess of it, right? And Jesus says, I will bring you to myself. I will reconcile you. I will restore you by my spirit. I will allow you to walk worthy of me. Do you get that? When Paul says, I want them to have wisdom and insight and understanding so they can walk worthy of me. What he's saying is, you will be what I wanted you to be from the beginning. You will live a life, the life that you were designed for. You're the life that you are made for. If you're that ambulance that's trapped in the garage because the idiot who's been fueling you has been pouring in Gatorade, can you imagine how good it would feel to finally get on the road? God says that to you. Jesus says, I died, I died, and I have risen from the dead. The text says he's the firstborn from among the dead. He has overcome death so that he can overcome death in your life as well. Because we keep screwing things up, we find ourselves enslaved to all those rulers and powers and authorities. Sometimes that looks like demonic forces in our lives that we've given too much credence to by running from God. And sometimes it looks like the way that the cultures and systems that we've created as humans beat the mess out of us. And Jesus comes as a human, and he takes the full rage of all of the dark spiritual forces and all the dark cultural forces. The New Testament says that death and sin and the devil and bad rulers and bad religious authorities and stupid mobs all team up on Jesus! And he takes their wrath and their violence and he drinks it down to the bottom. 
And then he throws that cup away and he says, it's done. Death, violence, brokenness, darkness. I have taken it on myself. And on the third day, he stood up with power in his hands. And he says, now I give you my resurrection life. It's yours. It's yours. I didn't just do this for me. I'm the head of the body, which is the church. Everything that is true of me, the life that is in me, the grace that is in me, the peace and the mercy can be yours if you will but come to me. All things are being reconciled by Jesus who has made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Those are my two points. Jesus is the creator and the ruler of all things. The creator and the ruler became one of us to reconcile all things. What does that mean for us? The first and most important thing it means that Paul is calling us to, that Paul is demanding, that Paul says, if you got what I said, stop what you're doing and worship this Christ and call your friends to do the same. Can you imagine... Just pause. What would be different about your life if you really believed that the Jesus we're singing about here was holding the atoms in your body together? Got to your job before you did and stayed after you left. Woke up before your sick child and stayed up with your sick child after you finally passed out on the couch. What would be, make a difference in your life if you knew that everywhere, all things, every single dynamic of human reality was being held constantly in existence by this king? You would fall, and that he had become a human and died for you. You would fall on your knees and you would worship in thanksgiving and joy and praise. You would be constantly looking for ways to say, this God, this king, thank you, Jesus. Uh, I, I work at the Memphis College of Urban and Theological Studies, and we had uh, the thing that you do in chapel at the beginning of the year, convocation. And uh, Pastor Melvin Watkins from historic Mount Vernon Baptist Church was there, and he said, the Psalms tell us that we should be praise addicts. We should be addicted to the praise of God. We shouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning without thinking about praising God. And the reason why he's right about that is because this is the God that we worship. Before all things, through all things, for whom all things were made. And in him all things hold together. And if we worshiped that king, we would be constantly inviting other people to do the same. With our words and with our lives, we would be constantly inviting other people to do the same. See, Paul talks about all this great stuff in this letter, right? Like getting your life worked out and, you know, walking worthy and knowing things about God and how to get along with one another and how to live in the family. But none of that makes any difference. Not one bit. It's all garbage. Unless it doesn't come from Jesus, who is exactly who Paul says he is. Is that the kind of Christian life that you're living? Where nothing makes sense? Unless the God of the universe can be encountered in this Jesus? And if so, why are we so bad at telling other people about him? Why are we so reluctant to worship ourselves and to call others to worship? See, the crazy thing that Paul is saying is that, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to get our minds wrapped around. It's like Paul, on the one hand, is saying, nothing matters but Jesus. Right? He's the beginning and the end and everything in between. Nothing matters but Jesus. But then he's also saying that because Jesus created and rules and sustains everything, nothing matters but Jesus, 
But in Jesus, everything matters. Nothing matters but Jesus, but in Jesus, everything matters. And I think, okay, let, can, let me give an analogy. I'm going to try to give an analogy. I don't know if it's a good one. I'm going to try to give an analogy. Imagine, imagine for a second that there was a country that you wanted to become, that you wanted to live in and be a citizen in, okay? And, and you're like, I really, I, for whatever reason, this is a great place to live. They've got great rulers. They've got great laws. It's just like a heck of a place to live. That's where I want to be. I want to be a citizen of that place right? Well, then a number of things would have to happen. You know, you have to move there. You have to learn the culture and the customs. You have to, you know, find a place to live and stay and a job, right? And make friends. And then you'd also have to, like, as a citizen, you have to get legal, right? You have to get your papers in order and go through whatever the processes were to get that citizenship paper. And at one point in that society, in that culture, in that community, there'd probably be a day where some judge says, today, you are now a citizen of this country, whatever it was. Right? Let's imagine if that's a picture of the Christian life. Let's imagine if that's a picture of the Christian life. A lot of us grew up in churches where the only thing we ever talked about was that moment when the judge says, you are now a citizen. Our gospel was so small. Our gospel was, your soul can get right with God, and then you can go on with your business until he takes you to heaven when you die. Like, that was it. And it's stupid. I mean, imagine if Jesus owns all things, if he's reconciling all things, acting like the only thing he really wants to do is rescue my soul and take it to heaven, is like, is like getting your citizenship papers and staying in the country you came from. It's like staying back where you came from. Like, I'm so glad I have that citizen card, but never learning the language of your new country or never being a part of the culture of your new country or never living there or getting a job there or spending any time there. You're not a citizen of that place. That doesn't make any sense. It's just on a piece of paper, right? That's a stupid way to talk about the gospel. And for many of us, that's how we've talked about the gospel in the churches and the traditions we grew up in. It was just about getting your soul beamed up to heaven when you died. It was just about making sure your name was on the piece of paper. And Paul said, everything matters in Jesus! But brothers and sisters, the problem that I just, don't, I just outlined, I don't think that's your problem. And I don't think it's my problem. I think we all know that Jesus is in the business of doing something big and huge. I think we all know that it's about much more than just saving my individual soul. I think we're so excited about all the things that God is doing as a part of the gospel that we've sometimes forgotten that you can make the equal mistake in reverse. It would be just as stupid to be excited about your citizenship papers and never move as it would be to try to take up residence in this new community, this new society, and try to get the benefits of living there in the culture and learning the language and never going through the process to become a citizen. See, we in this church are really excited about the all things that Christ is reconciling. And I don't know about you, but in my life, I sometimes forget that to get the all that Jesus is doing, we require Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus cares about all the stuff that we're talking about week in and week out. The good news of this, this song in Colossians is that Jesus really is bringing justice unto victory for the poor and the immigrant and the oppressed. Jesus really is deconstructing racism and white supremacy and classism, bigotry. And Paul's going to talk about that. He's going to say that. He can say that in Christ there is no more classism. There is no more racism. There is justice for the oppressed. 
Paul is really excited about liberating people. The gospel, we're excited about God liberating us from our addictions and our dysfunctions. And God's doing all that. But sometimes I wake up, having worked on a bunch of that stuff, and realize it's been a long time since I ever said to anybody, do you want to get to know Jesus? And Paul's telling us very clearly, everything matters because of Jesus. Without Jesus, ultimately, everything falls apart. In your life, as you seek to be ministers of the gospel, are you telling people with your mouth about King Jesus? If you are not, and I confess that often I am not, it is because I do not believe this passage. It's because I do not believe those truths. You cannot believe that Jesus is before all things. He's the one for whom all things were created. He's the one through whom all things were created. And, and go try to do good things and hope people figure out the Jesus part on their own. Just can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. It would be like if I helped somebody repair their ambulance and never told them that now their job was to get people to the hospital. I'm grateful that the car works, but the point of the car is to get to the hospital. Jesus wants to make this world a better place so that every knee bows and tongue confesses that he's the king. It's the glory of God the Father. God cares about everything because in Jesus he has made and is reconciling everything. So if we get that, if we get that, we will worship Jesus and we will tell other people about him. But secondly... If we get that, we will actively embrace that reconciliation he offers in our lives. In our lives, right? If Jesus is reconciling all things, if he made everything about you, if he knit you together in your mother's womb, if he is sustaining your very existence, and your life looks like my life, <laughs> Jesus still got some work to do, right? There's parts of my life that need to be reconciled. There's parts of my life that need to change. And Jesus is saying, I'm doing that. And because he's doing that, we can join him in doing that. We can actively pursue reconciliation in our lives. I love the way C.S. Lewis says this. He says, imagine that each one of you is a living house. And imagine that God comes in to rebuild that house, to reconcile all things in that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drain right. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing. You're not surprised that's what he's working on. But presently... He starts knocking the house of your life about in ways that hurt abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What is he up to? The explanation is that he is building in your life quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. To be a Christian who believes in this Jesus is to at every moment say, all of my life is being reconciled to God. And then to ask, what does it look like for me to pursue that? When I was growing up, I heard people say a lot of times, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And the truth of this passage is, God does have a wonderful plan for your life, every part of it. And most of it is going to be painful, right? Uh, God has a wonderful plan for your sex life. And it isn't the one that you've got. God has a wonderful plan for your money. And it's probably not the one that you've got. God has a wonderful plan for your career and your education and what it's like to be in a family or not be in the family that you want to be. God has a wonderful place, plan for your life for where you live and who your friends are. And none of that stuff is what you would have come up with on your own. That's not the house you're trying to build. 
You're not trying to build the house that God's trying to build in your life. And God says, good news. I'm going to come in and knock down all the stuff I don't like and put stuff I like back in. Now join me. Join me in that. Richard, a few months ago, sent out a, a, a sermon from um, Sam Alberry, who is a, 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 a guy who um, struggles with same-sex attraction. Uh, he's a, a homosexual Christian, is, would be another way to put it. And he, uh, in his talk, he says, listen, uh, he's living a celibate lifestyle as an act of discipleship for Jesus. And he, and he says in his talk, uh, people come up to me and say, it must be so hard for you because this is the thing that you struggle with. And he said that he started saying, if you think that my struggle is ultimately harder than yours, I'm not sure that you've seen what God's demanding of you yet. Right? If there aren't parts of our lives that God is demanding that are costly, um, we either don't know him or we haven't figured out what he's up to. Because the reconciliation, the, God rebuilding this house is going to be painful. God's wonderful plan for your life in every part of your life. And I, I was thinking about this because the, the, the way that this works, the way that we get transformed uh, is in the passage. He is the head. Jesus is the head of the body that is the church. So the, 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 the mode of transformation, the way that you and I participate in this reconciliation is we become part of Jesus by his spirit. We become united to him, and when we become united to him, we find ourselves in church. Right? So this body, this place, the people of God is the place where we experience Jesus knocking us about to put everything back together. There's a comedian that I really love um, who has some funny thoughts about church. They're extremely irreverent. But one thing he says, he's talking about living in New York and nobody grew up in church, right? And he's like, people can't figure out what it's like to go to church. He's like, they're so befuddled by like me growing up in a religious community. And he's like, and he's like, they're like, people ask me, well, what did you do? And he's, I say, I don't know. I was seven and it was an hour, right? And he says, that should be the slogan of the church. It's just an hour, right? And his point is, like, if churches were honest that all we're really asking for is an hour, maybe more people would come. That is not a church that is the body of the one by whom all things were made, through whom all things were made, and for whom all things were made. Being a part of that church isn't just an hour. It's a life, and a painful one at that. And too often the church has advertised. It's just an hour. Jesus just wants your soul. Or maybe he wants your tithe. Or maybe he wants like an hour at our service and programming. Or maybe he wants you to volunteer one week. And, and God said, no, I want the whole thing top to bottom. So what's it look like in your life? And then lastly, what's it look like in your world? Jesus is reconciling all things in heaven and earth. Including those pesky thrones and rulers and powers and authorities. Which means that everywhere you go, you have an opportunity to ask yourself, what would it look like for Jesus to be reconciling this, and how do I be a part of that? At your job, when people, when, you, you know what it's like when there's a toxic work culture, when everyone's just like mean to each other and it's just miserable? What would it look like for Jesus to reconcile that? You know what it would look like. Like peace, and the cut the backbiting, and the gossiping, and the misery. Now you do that! You participate in it. You share in it. When you go home this afternoon and you're arguing with your spouse because it's Sunday and that's the only thing spouses ever do on Sunday is argue. You say, what would it look like for this to be reconciled? I know what it would look like. Now you do that. Right? 
I don't know what it would look like in every area. What if every step you took, you were saying, this too is a place that Jesus is saying, mine. And so my life will say his in the way that I live here. It's impossible to figure out how to make application points at this point because the application is everything. So instead of making like a really sharp application point, I'm instead going to make a sales pitch. Brothers and sisters, the way that we figure out what it looks like for Jesus to make all things new in every area of our lives is we open up God's word in prayer together. That's how you do it. The way we know what the reconciled world looks like is we open up God's word in prayer together. And that's why I'm so excited that we're launching this new Sunday school thing. Because I have no idea what it's going to look like for you to pursue reconciliation in every area of your life. But I know that if every week you commit to open up God's word in prayer with other people, you will find yourself intoxicated with a vision of this king and the world that he is bringing and how you can be a part of transforming it. So whatever it looks like, and I sure hope it looks like Sunday school, but whatever it looks like, open up the word in prayer with others and ask God, what does this reconciliation of all things look like in my life and in your life in this world? In this text, Jesus stands before us as the creator, as the sustainer, as the ruler, and as the reconciler. And that is exactly how Jesus stands before us at these tables. And a minute when we take communion, what we are saying is, I pledge my allegiance to the God who became human and said, my life for yours, I will make all things new. When we come to these tables, we are invited to meet with Jesus, who says, I am the creator and ruler and sustainer of all things. My life for yours, I will reconcile all things. Come and follow me. If you would like prayer for a place in your life that needs reconciling, if you would like prayer to understand how to let go of what stands between you and God and walk with him, I'm going to ask some of our community group leaders and elders to come and be ready for prayer. And if you've never met this king and you want to talk about what it would mean to pledge your allegiance to him, the one in whom and through whom and for whom are all things, come, come meet this God. And may he send us out to be participants in his reconciling work. Jesus, we are grateful for you. We love you. We ask that you be with us in power, reconciling all things in our lives and in our worlds. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen.